The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Hey, this is Paul Rudy with Paul Rudy's On the Money Radio Show. I'm here with a couple of my regular guests, Dr. Fred Gertz. Dr. Fred, good to see you. Good to be here. And at least I can hear myself. Okay, I got you, Fred. Uh, certified financial planner, professional David Rudy on the phone. I'm going to get him on there in a minute. And certified financial planner, professional Ryan Repko, who also works with me at Rudy Wealth Management. Well, good morning, guys. Good morning. You can call in with your questions at 217-356-9397. Or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also email your questions to talk at WDWS.com. It's important to recognize the past performance is not an indication of future results, and you should not make any investment decisions without, without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Out of the way, let me see if I can get David on there twice. Boom. David, are you with me? Okay, just I wanted to make sure I had you on there and I pressed the right buttons at the right time. I guess I did. Well, Fred, uh, you know, I remember Jim Hines used to always say everything's coming up roses from the right. University of <laughs> Illinois. Uh, uh, I only invoke his name because I just like that, the sound of everything's coming up roses. I, I know right. that's an exaggeration, but clearly when you have manufacturing showing that it's expanding, you know, the, the purchasing manager's index and some of these, indi- even the service indices that are showing expansion. Basically right now, I, the S&P 500 probably looks like if it finishes today where it is, it could very well have made up 100% of the uh, losses or the decline that it had earlier in the year, which is pretty amazing. And I think somehow those have to be tied together with the stock market's been maybe telling us uh and now sort of what's happening am i being too optimistic too rosy well i mean you're being optimistic whether it's too rosy is another question i think that uh it is a little bit mystifying about uh the strength of the equity markets the last uh couple months but again uh we always talk about them being forward looking but they're not forward forward looking with uh, perfection sure. but clearly uh, they're looking through the current situation and, and assuming things are going to uh, improve uh, over the long term, which actually is, is good news. But again, that doesn't uh, guarantee it. It's just the, the hope that people have, the expectation. And again, there, uh, it's very hard to balance news right now. You're getting all kinds of uh, uh, this place is up and in, in, right. uh, virus readings and some places down and uh, this uh, company has gone bankrupt. Others are, are right. doing well. So it's, it's a very mixed kind of thing. And we've been saying for a long time there's a lot of upside potential, but there's also a lot of downside uh, risk here. And I think that's still true. But clearly the performance of the equity markets the last couple of weeks are really uh, uh, surprisingly strong. Uh, you talked about earlier about people who uh, failed to rebalance, and they had a chance to uh, get out of jail card. Right. Now, now they have a whole handful of yeah. uh, get out of jail uh, card free because uh, you know if, if you haven't rebalanced for a year or so, uh, you still have your chance now. Particularly, uh, Dave and Ryan, if if you were caught off guard uh, in that sudden decline, uh, it would seem that it would be almost malpractice not to, as an investor. Um, not to visit that allocation question and maybe consider like, you know what, I, I was over my skis and by that I mean, suppose I had a 
two-thirds of my uh, investment portfolio in stocks, and I'm retired or whatever. And I, it really scared me so much that I'd never want to visit that again. Well, one way to maybe assure that is to change your thinking about your lifetime allocation, not just swinging back and forth along with the market, but just maybe a structural change. Yeah, certainly. I, I think there's the old saying that a calm sea never makes a strong sailor or a strong captain. And for the last, you know. Fred, we're supposed to have all those old sayings, <laughs> right. not these young guys. Right. Well, I had to look it up in history books, but yes, it exists. Um, but the, the point I was going to make is that you know things have been going along pretty smoothly for a while up until the, the major decline this spring. And so people who probably thought, you know, I can invest in 60, 70, 80% stocks is, is perfectly fine and I'm comfortable and I can handle that. And then their, their first, you know, swarm of, of C's hits them and they say, oh my gosh, maybe I'm not as comfortable at this particular allocation in, or higher allocation in stocks. So it does. It, it does give you the opportunity to evaluate or maybe recalibrate what might be more appropriate for you given a long term of you know, maybe several decades of investing ahead of you. Have you had that conversation with a person or two or is it just, you know, you, you, you mention it, but most of them are pretty comfortable where they were because they survived it? Uh, I think for us personally, it's you know it's anecdotal, of course, but the the majority of our clients are already in a, a financial plan where we've discussed the reason and the rationale for why they're invested the way they are. A handful of clients, I will say, we did decide that it is an appropriate time if they choose to exercise it to maybe take some of that flex or some of that fluctuation off the table, and by that I just mean reducing the amount of stock holdings that they have permanently. So again, it's not a, a reaction to the immediate market change, but it's a, a point looking forward. Now, maybe a client who's in their 80s uh, saying that, you know, I don't I don't need to put up with the fluctuation that I did as a as a younger 60 year old, maybe or a 70 year old. Um, and it allows them to make that change for a permanent reason. Yeah, that's one of the things I've noticed, you know, 10 years goes by so quickly that yeah, I realized that some of my clients that are 85 were 75 during the last decline. And and, you know, in that 10-year span, I think you have to respect the idea that, you know, time horizons are changing and all that. So trying to be a little more proactive on that conversation just to make sure everybody's expectations right. For I mentioned the ISM Manufacturing and Services Indices, uh, you know, it manages auto sales. Uh, I mean, and then looking at auto sales, employment report, all beat expectations. Manufacturing index came in at fifty four point two, and I think the it's if it's over fifty percent, it, it suggests awesome. expansion. Yeah. Um, and then it said uh, the service index, which now is talking about the service index, hit a robust fifty eight point one for July. I I know statistics are boring, but the point is, uh, new orders are strong and all these things, and uh, both the manufacturing and service. In, in I just wouldn't have believed it if you if someone would have told me that yeah. was even possible. Well, the real ago. the real question, and I don't know the uh, way they calculate the numbers, but sure. whether it's compared to a month ago or two months ago, or whether it's compared to a year ago, I suspect the reason it's so strong is they're comparing it to the. Uh, time when the economy really was down. So it's really improving, but it doesn't mean that we're better off than we were back in, in February, just that we're moving back in that direction. And when you do the flash index, how do you handle that? Does that it's a, a kind of fed in gradually. So it's the, the last month has a lot of importance, but it's not the only thing that, okay. so you, you lose the uh, uh, month uh, a year ago and you add another month, that, but again, the, the final month has more importance, but it's not the only thing that has an impact. And I see that cars and light trucks, that's a big deal. We're uh, sold at a 14.5 million annual rate in July, the highest since February when sales were 16.8 annualized. Uh, 
to put this in perspective, the auto sales bottomed at 8.7 million annual and rate of April. So we've crawled back from people just kind of pulling back from buying cars to getting closer every day to kind of the, the, the where we were before all this. Um, we've recovered only 40% of the jobs so far. That's that. It's hard for me to reconcile the stock market at all-time highs and all these things going on and recognizing that out of all the millions of people that lost jobs, 40% of them still right. have made up a lot of ground, and that's good. Um, yeah. You know, <laughs> We've gone from seeing employment numbers uh, that were worse than we've ever seen to now some of the rebounding, right. creating a situation where you have some of the best ever seen. Now, the, the unfortunate side of that story is that Illinois is not rebounding as quickly. We still have one of the higher unemployment rates in the country that's contrasted to uh, an unemployment rate which is basically equal to the national average before the crisis occurred well so, money goes where it's treated best and i see where uh some of the politicians in new york and some of these other states are saying you know what uh, they're just pleading with their multi-millionaires to stay in their states and right. um it would only seem like com like a sensible conclusion that well it won't be armageddon there will be a a lot of people that probably choose to move to more business-friendly client, you know, uh, climates, etc. Yeah, the, the other wild card is that uh, I've always said that even though a lot of downstate people would like to uh, disattach themselves from the Chicago area, that Chicago really is the engine of growth for the whole Illinois economy, and now that's being, uh, to a certain extent, undermined by the unrest there. That's a, I've read that some people who thought that living downtown was a, a, a new way of yeah. uh, life. It, it's not quite as attractive as it might have been uh, a year or two ago. You know, my son Daniel, my youngest, uh, he works for us at Rudy Wealth. He, he works basically out of, out of his home, um, and he's been living in downtown Dallas, and he still loves Dallas very much, mm -hmm. but he said, you know, after a while, it's starting to sound a little, <laughs> and he's in his 20s, and he said, so they're moving to Johns Island. Right. That, that's where old people like me go, Fred, Johns Island, South oh, Carolina. Well, mine was actually more more pointed. <laughs> uh, the problem of living downtown is the un unrest that's occurring in Chicago at the uh, the last uh, couple months. And, and that was even happening in Dallas as well, and I think that kind of gets people's attention. It makes me a little bit creeped out. Maybe it's just because now I'm in my 60s. Um, and getting like old and cranky, but you know, I remember when downtown Champaign was a place you didn't go, mm -hmm. uh, and it's come, it's more than come back. I mean, it's it's probably more spectacular than anybody would have ever envisioned, yeah. let alone forty or fifty years ago. Yeah. And it always seems to me, and I'm I'm really not referring to downtown Champaign, but you know that that concerns me too. Uh, but you get to these major urban, you know, these cities, and it, it's it's frightening to me that we could go back to where these downtowns are once again kind of like a wasteland. Right. And it's more more true in Chicago because the uh, the it's mixed uh, commercial and retail and so on. Uh, downtown Champaign uh, doesn't have a lot of, sorry for if I'm offending anyone, but not, no, no. not a lot of retail activity there. So in terms of uh, unrest, there's probably not a, a lot of unrest there. It would occur other places. Then they have to go somewhere else to steal the good stuff, right? <laughs> so, anyway, that's true. Someone... Uh, I, I, from time to time, I've thought about putting our offices in down champ, downtown Champaign, but it's just the idea of there's cr so much crime to me, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm blowing out of proportions, and, and, and I would admit it that maybe I am. Uh, but it's still concerning enough to me that that's that one checkbox I can't check off to say, well, I've got to think about the safety of my family and my clients as well. Well, I suspect uh, if you keep normal business hours, you're going to be pretty safe in 
Yeah. Downtown Champaign. As, as long as you don't open up to 2 a.m. meeting times, I think we'll be okay. <laughs> you, know, you guys don't know how slowly I can run. <laughs> but anyway, uh, it looks like all around the board things are getting better. It just sort of doesn't feel like it is to me. Um, what do you think, Fred, about this idea that uh, both sides of the aisle can't get together uh, on trying to – well, do we think we even need a relief package first? Well, I think we do politically that it's, uh, it's got to be almost impossible to, to go to the election with uh, one side or the other being blamed for not having a relief package. So I think there's a political necessity. It's probably not a bad idea uh, if it's scaled back in, in some way to continue it. Uh, it's kind of a strange world now that we're all going to have to uh, go back and learn our our uh, Constitution differently. But I, I didn't realize the president could – uh, change Social Security contributions uh, unilaterally. So there are all kinds of things happening here that are, are really strange. And we always thought that uh, bills had to be approved by Congress and signed by the president. But Again, like you say, that's kind of, politi- kind of political. We may very well not have the ability to do that, but you have to challenge them on it. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of will in Washington to do much of anything to address uh, deficits. No. Uh, and there's no concern. There's no concern... Either, either side of the aisle of what the Federal Reserve's doing, um, whether you agree or disagree with it. I mean, he's clearly doing things that I'm, I'm not convinced are legal when it comes to buying junk bonds and some of those things. I, I, I'm not a scholar, so I, but I'm, all these unprecedented moves. Yeah. But there's normally there's a political you know, challenger on one side, of, well, especially it, Federal Reserve yeah. intervention. Well, I think you could go back to the... Uh, Democratic debates this year and go back to the Republican and Democrat uh, debates uh, four years ago, you probably wouldn't see one reference to a deficit or uh, controlling spending or uh, making sure that uh, Social Security is funded appropriately. Those things are simply off the table now, which is really a a strange kind of thing because if there's a a medium-term problem we face, it's clearly the uh, financial problem of maintaining government spending. You uh, you can't... uh, uh, you can't subsidize people indefinitely to have more money than they would uh, uh, get working while not working. So it has to end at some point. The question it, is, how do you do that? It seems to me, and I'm not taking a position on it, not because I'm a sissy boy. It's just because I don't know enough about it. But common sense-wise, intuitively, let's put it that way, it would seem that, yes, if two, two-thirds of the people, if, if what the data I read was correct, were actually earning more in unemployment than they were working, but that is a disincentive to going back to work for a number of people. And I kind of like the idea if you're going to – we probably need to – I think I could agree that we probably need to, to keep something going on unemployment um, when, we, you know, when we have the most expensive self-inflicted wound uh, in our country's history. And, you know, so then I'm thinking, well, it's 400. I mean, nobody knows what the right number yeah. is, but it's, it seems like – Okay, maybe not two thirds of the people now are are, are disincentivized. Uh, maybe it's a third or so of the yeah. folks that might still be earning more. There's also a bigger kind of that uh, writ large is that a, a society can't continue to spend more than they earn year after year after year. So again, it'd be nice if we could uh, subsidize everyone forever uh, with this, but clearly it can't be done because we don't have the. Uh, wherewithal to do that i think you'd find a surprising number of people that would disagree with that um at least to the extent that i think there's a 
substantial number percentage of people that think you can just spend and spend and spend and there's no in there's but and you know that in their personal lives if you just look around humanity there's just a lot of irresponsible people now some people get behind the eight ball because just terrible things happen in their lives but we have to recognize that there's a number certain percentage of the population that are just you don't have to have that new bmw and all the fancy pants stuff um what do you think about the idea of a payroll uh, first of all, it doesn't really, it's not really a payroll tax cut as it stands now. Even if it flies, it's more like, well, it might be. Yeah. So it seemed to me that these temporary things that may not even be, uh, you might just be putting money in one pocket going into another. Well, I think I'm it's, not a, sure it's it does a, anything. It's a, uh, alternative to simply sending out people money. And, and the argument is if you cut the payroll tax, uh, the, the way it manifests itself is in people working, they get uh, a larger share of their income, or the employer doesn't have to pay as much uh, in Social Security so they can hire more people. So it, it does have a, a kind of rationale, whether it's uh, completely uh, correct or not, is uh, unclear. But again, it, it's targeted more to get people back to work as opposed to simply support people's um, uh, standard of living. So I read where Carl Tobias, a law professor at the University of Richmond School of Law, said Trump may have some legal authority to defer payroll taxes and student loan repayments as well as extending housing assistance, but the $400 unemployment payments are a different story. That's kind of what you're, you know, you're, yeah. you're saying. Wow, that's kind of interesting. Um, one of the things that's been happening as of late, um, and it's certainly helping, I think, with the, our international stock positions, uh, is the dollar certainly it seems like our central bank is being much more aggressive on the stimulus and uh, deficit spending uh, than than compared to when you look around the globe and that has had I think for seven weeks in a row the U.S. dollar has declined in value relative to the dollar index um, yeah this is that shot of, that shot gold prices up silver prices up yeah uh, it's kind of a, people uh, international financial issues are always uh, kind of murky and difficult to understand, but uh, this actually makes our stock cheaper to foreigners, so one reason the stock market may be uh, uh, having such uh, strength is because foreigners now view U.S. stocks as cheaper than they were before because in their own currency, they could buy more. In normal times, doesn't that lead to inflation or tend to? Uh, it, it does if, if the um, things are aligned correctly, but clearly this is not the... That's why I kind of preface is, it with a normal time. And this is, uh, again, uh, we have all these problems, and some are problems right now, and some are problems in the future, and um, we've always talked about funding Social Security and um, Medicare and things like that as being a, a, a super serious problem, but one that's not necessarily here right now, but has to be addressed at some point. The same thing is true, uh, we're talking about here, that... Uh, this kind of the, the problem of inflation is obviously uh, very disruptive if it occurs, and it was very uh, damaging in the, the 60s and 70s. But we're far away from uh, reaching that kind of situation now. So the Fed has a lot of leeway to operate without worrying too much about inflation. And they actually have said that uh, uh, again, it's kind of looking ahead that they're willing to accept a higher than two percent inflation for a while to make up for the uh, underperformance in, in past years. I was reading where, because part of the relief is uh, is provided to people with stu- you know people with student loans, but <laughs> the number that stuck out in my brain is uh, outstanding student loan debt in the U.S. has spiraled to more than 1.6 trillion. Some one in seven borrowers were in delinquency, and the average monthly student loan bill is close to 400. Now, 
this 1.6 trillion stuck out in my brain and then you like $400 a month is hardly a crisis. Yeah. Now uh, I, I I don't yeah. know, maybe maybe I just read a If it's you it probably is a crisis, but it doesn't sound like uh, yeah, I, I I just read an article in the Wall Street Journal about the uh I think uh, uh Ryan's generation and David's generation are having a a difficult time, not not him personally, but right. uh, people that generation because they got hit with the uh, 2008 crisis and now another one. And they had a story about a, a woman who was making $85,000 a year and she had $75,000 in student loans and she couldn't pay it off over a five-year period. Well, again, I, I don't know her situation, but that seems like uh, a manageable kind of problem if you, you ask me. Yeah, I, you know, again, I, I think you know the average student loan balance balance is somewhere around twenty five, twenty seven thousand. So it, it's 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 not a good thing, especially in a weak job market. But uh, you know, I think it has blown out of proportion. Well, so, yeah, uh, the, the, there's a the uh, the real problem is people who uh, simply kept adding it on. Uh, someone has maybe gone to a college, uh, uh, a costly college, and maybe have fifty thousand dollars in loans. They can't find a job, so they decide to take another set of loans to go to graduate school and then come out of graduate school and it goes on and on. So uh, those kind of people really are in, in, in deep trouble. Yeah, certainly. And the, w- the one thing I saw from that article too that I thought was really shocking was about upwards of two-thirds of people who have student loans are only paying the interest. So their balance is not declining. Meanwhile, they're just continuing to pay just the minimum on the interest. And to me, I look at that and say, that yeah, that's a challenge and that's a problem. But I think for a, a number of people, not everyone by any means, I'm not painting with a broad brush, but a lot of people don't make the difficult choices in life and say, I need to prioritize my spending and, and I've got to try to work harder to get this money down rather than maybe someone who's kind of living that, that Facebook lifestyle like we like to allude to from time to time. And, you know, it's it's a matter of what's important and what's a priority. And like you said, Dr. Fred, I know people who have done that and they've deferred and gone on for more schooling or maybe they went to a school they shouldn't have in the first place took on more loans than they should have, and here they are in, in, in the crisis that they are. It's like, well, if it weren't for COVID, I wouldn't have this issue. Well, maybe if you made some wiser decisions on the front end, you wouldn't have the issue. Yeah. Well, there's always the, the Dave Ramsey solution is to bite the bullet now and go through right. two or three years of austerity and then yeah, be clear. clear. But that, again, it's easy for Dave Ramsey to say it's not necessarily Very, easy for Right, <laughs> exactly. It's like, well, you can only eat ramen noodles so many days a week before you realize you can't do it anymore. Yeah. Sometimes I think that young people and i think every generation said this but when i think back to the prior generations and what they really faced the epidemics you know the the slew of epidemics and risks to life world wars uh god it just well I, this is a financial show I, this isn't a cranky <laughs> paul show but it seems like our ideas of what's tough these days is certainly kind of yeah. soft well there's also the perception everyone uh, talks about uh, uh, young people can't uh, meet the standards of their parents or grandparents. Well, uh, my recollection is that uh, not all 20-year-olds uh, 50 years ago or 40 years ago were living in mansions or going out to eat all the time. There's a lot of austerity there that was not really considered austerity because of the way life was in those days. Yeah. Certainly a lot of people left behind, and you, you recognize why there's a lot of some of the issues we have. One of the things I want to talk about, Dave and Ryan, is it's kind of this hold to majority myth. I'm going to get into it in bonds. Uh, Typically pops up when interest rates are really low and everybody's anticipating a rise in interest rates inevitably. 
And it's this idea that you're better off then to go out and buy individual bonds than you are to go out and buy very low cost, broadly diversified, extremely well-managed bond mutual funds. I'd be interested to know what your guys' take on that is and discuss that a little bit amongst yourselves, if you would. Sure. Dave, you haven't, you haven't chimed in for a bit. Do you want to start off? Yeah, for sure. So this is something, and I'd, I'd hear this every now and then when I was working at Dimensional Fund Advisors as well, and I think psychologically sometimes individual bonds do feel better. So what you were alluding to is a lot of times people think buying and holding a bond at maturity essentially insulates you against what's called interest rate risk. So when interest rates go up, bond prices go down. But people who hold an individual bond to maturity, even though their bond price is technically lower, a lot of times they're really just not paying as much attention to that. And they're like thinking, well, I'm going to keep getting my interest payments. I'm going to hold it to maturity. Um, I'm not any worse off because interest rates rose and my bond price went down. Um, Kind of the issue there, that is a little bit of a myth because you are still harmed by it and there is still a cost to holding onto that bond as opposed to being able to reinvest in a bond with higher interest rates. So just right off the bat, that's that's one thing, like you said, it's very common for people to talk about that as a benefit to individual bonds, but it's really not not necessarily a benefit. It's very overblown. You still have that interest rate risk, even if you use individual bonds. Um, and then we had a question recently from <laughs> A client just asking, you know, why do we use bond funds as opposed to individual bonds? And I don't know that he was necessarily talking about, um, you know, the the interest rate kind of issue I was just talking about now. Just more of a curiosity thing. And I told him I think it's really helpful maybe to go over just our general investment philosophy and what we're trying to accomplish with the bond portion of our portfolio because I think it's different than what a lot of people think of. So. When we're investing in bonds, I think the two primary roles we're looking to fulfill are one, we want bonds to be the stabilizer of the investment portfolio. So very few people could stand to be 100% stock and see their portfolio drop, you know, 40, 50% in these, you know, more extreme market decline scenarios like, you know, this past March in, in 2008. And for that reason, a portion of their money is going to need to be in bonds just from a, a risk tolerance standpoint. Um, the other role that I think is really important, particular, particularly for our business, which is dealing primarily with retirees, is I think of the bond portion of the portfolio as kind of like a, I call it a war chest of money that's that's stable or relatively stable that we can take a client's monthly withdrawals from during the periods when the stock market's down substantially. So it can kind of insulate you from having to sell from the stock portion when it's down. Um, you kind of naturally end up doing that anyways because you want to rebalance the portfolio. Um, but those are the two primary ones. So a couple things that we're really not trying to accomplish necessarily is just to generate the highest returns possible. Um, and then the other thing is we're not necessarily trying to just generate a super high yield. We're not relying on bonds um, to generate all the income for our retirees, which is almost impossible these days unless you had like junk bonds. Um, those two things just the only way to accomplish to earn a little bit higher returns and higher yield is to take on a lot more risk in your bond portfolio which sabotages the first two roles that we're trying to accomplish so fundamentally that's kind of our investment philosophy in a nutshell bonds should be stable they should be um, a source of income so to accomplish those goals we 
from a broad perspective, we're going to own relatively short to intermediate term bonds because they're not quite as sensitive to interest rate changes. Um, and we're going to own primarily really high quality bonds and we stick within the investment grade spectrum. So we don't own junk bonds. Those fluctuate almost as much as the stock market. So just getting back to what we're trying to accomplish since we want bonds to be stable and to be a stable source of income uh, when the market's down, we basically have to stick to the shorter term, higher quality bond. So that's kind of our philosophy. And then, you know, the question of, well, why do we use bond funds instead of individual bonds? Um, I think there's a few main reasons. So the first one is that bond funds allow you, even if you have a relatively small amount of money to invest, it allows you to diversify across hundreds of different bond holdings or maybe even thousands. Um, it's very difficult to do that with individual bonds when you have you know, a specific dollar value just to buy a single bond. So as the listeners of our show know, we're huge proponents of being diversified just to reduce risk and risks that really aren't compensated. So uh, we don't want to be concentrated in a handful of companies' bonds, especially, you know, corporate bonds. This is where it's more of an issue where you do have a chance of default even if it's low. Um, the other thing, the other reason that we use bond funds is it's really expensive to trade individual bonds in small quantities. But bond funds have the advantage of having economies of scale. They can trade in huge lots. And in, in the bond market, when you trade in really big blocks or really big dollar value trades, your bond prices, you, your bond execution prices are going to be a lot better than if someone buys a small amount of bonds, you're going to have a, a wider bid-ask spread. So it can be more cost-effective from a trading standpoint to use bond funds. And then the third thing I told them, too, is it's really more from a practical standpoint. This one is, I call it greater liquidity, but... You know, bond funds, it's a lot easier to invest a small amount of money. You know, if you're investing a couple hundred dollars a month, you can put that into a bond fund. It's tough to, to invest $200 at a time into individual bonds. Um, same for getting your money out. You can get your money out in any quantity you want, um, kind of whenever you want. So it just tends to be a little more liquid. So um, from a big picture standpoint, those are the three primary reasons that we use bond funds as opposed to individual bonds. Um, and then we use primarily bond index funds. So I think that's worth pointing out to, you know, a lot of times you'll hear people say, well, yeah, active management doesn't work very well in the stock market. The stock markets are efficient, but, you know, active management, which is really just picking mispriced securities or timing the market, they can add a lot of value in the bond market. Um, but the problem is the evidence doesn't actually support that claim. <laughs> so if you look at the percentage <laughs> of bond funds that actually beat their benchmark over 20 years, and this is the 20-year period ending 2018, only 8% of bond funds actually beat their benchmark. So that's even lower than the stock side. So you know, basically that's just showing, look, even these really smart investors aren't able to um, pick mispriced bonds that are going to outperform or time interest rate movement. David, can I make so a, a instead of make a yeah. comment about uh, that? Uh, uh, I hear that all the time in uh, in terms of uh, institutional investing that uh, uh, passive is fine with stocks, but you could really uh, gain a lot with bonds. But what actually is done there is that. Uh, they establish an index and then they invest outside the index. So they're not really investing in the, right. in the, uh, 
universe that you're you're comparing with and, and take higher risk by going outside and that that often works but it also has the potential for not working in in catastrophic ways exactly yeah i mean it's it's really easy if you want to outperform your benchmark you could buy lower quality bonds which should theoretically have a higher expected return or or longer term bonds which should in a normal yield curve environment have higher returns so yeah that's always an option um, but it's really just an issue of picking the wrong benchmark or an inappropriate benchmark. But yeah, you do. I don't know why, but you hear that so much more often that active management can outperform or, or add value in the bond side more so than the stock side. And if anything, the evidence suggests it's the opposite. Um, so that's why we use bond index funds. They're just super diversified, super low cost. They're not trying to um, predict interest rate movements or concentrate in you know certain specific bonds. Um, and the costs are really low. And so all of this discussion as far as like individual bonds versus bond funds, a lot of it gets down to, you know, the downside to using a bond fund is there's an expense ratio to it. And with individual bonds, you don't have that expense ratio. So the question becomes, well, is the cost of the expense ratio of the fund more than offset by the benefits of using that fund? And I think in the vast majority of circumstances, you are better off paying that expense ratio, which for bond index funds is incredibly low these days, than investing in individual bonds and having some of those downsides, which would be, you know, probably going to be more concentrated, you're probably going to have higher transaction costs, and you're probably not going to have as much liquidity. And, and you also kind of a lot of times end up with what I call cash drag when you're investing in the individual bonds. So I know that was kind of a long ramble but that's that's essentially our our fixed income approach in a nutshell right. you guys have anything did i miss anything Fred, well, I, have to I have a, a story to illustrate your uh your uh, idea here that i belong to an organization and fortunately i was involved in the investment decisions at the time but in the early 2000s we had an old-fashioned kind of uh treasurer who liked to buy individual bonds and uh compare them and so on so we were uh into in, in the like 2005 six area into uh, uh, banking, uh, mortgage funds, and automobile industry. <laughs> so if you go ahead two or three years, uh, who was hardest hit by the uh, financial crisis? Well, uh, uh, mortgages, banking, and automobiles. So again, it seemed like a great idea in 2005. It wasn't a great idea in, in 2009. I think the more difficult part about the bond discussion is the fact that short-term high-quality intermediate bonds of high quality are paying such a low nominal rate which really with even the inflation rate we have is really a potentially a negative actual real interest rate adjusted for inflation I think that is what's really troubling people right now and I've always felt like periods of low interest yields interest rates and yields drives people to make significant mistakes um, and Dave mentioned two of them. One of them is, well, we can always increase maturities and go out and buy longer-term bonds, probably just at the wrong time. Then they are doing the opposite of what they wanted. As David said, you're actually bringing more volatility into your portfolio. Or they reach for a lower-quality bonds. They'll even dip into junk bonds, et cetera, not recognizing that it's just a different deal. There's no free lunch. And there just are no free lunches out there. It's a completely different dynamic, yeah, and but it's just it's a, more it's more of a emotional issue right now than it is when CDs are paying five percent. Well, even a, a more uh, dangerous step. The, the argument several maybe six months or a year ago was why not go into preferred stock or high dividend paying stock, and you get the uh, equivalent of a of a high return, but you get the 
benefit of being an equity market, which the benefit also has some negatives. Yeah, everybody's looking for that magic bullet, and it's never there. All there are is you trade one risk for another. You need to never eliminate risk. You're just transforming it all the time. Um, people that want to have 100% CDs on the front end of a 30-year retirement, they're trading, you know, they want to be secure on the front end, but they're trading that for probably a great deal of uncertainty, you know, in the last third of their retirement. And the people that will say, well, you know what, it is 30 years of rising cost, therefore maybe 50 or 60 or 70% of my money is going to have to be invested in the great companies of America and the world. Um, they're going to face a lot more insecurity on the front end of retirement, but they're much more likely to have uh, significant security towards the last third of their retirement. So th this is a this is I think Paul wrote uh, son Paul wrote an article or one of you guys did for uh, the newspaper this coming up this Sunday in his 101 column and just talked about this performance chasing and what that is, is just another form of performance chasing. But you know when you think about it, if you have a 50-50 portfolio mix, 50% stocks, globally diversified, 50% short and high-term quality bonds or CDs or whatever you want to put into place there. You're talking about investing 40 or 50% of your portfolio in an asset class that right now, I think you have to be thinking in terms of one, one and a half percent, um, you know, unless something unusual happens and interest rates go significantly lower from where they are here. It's always possible, but it's that a bit that, that, the magnitude of that decline, which would buffer bond prices, is certainly diminishing at all times. How do you guys? You know, how, how do you thing, go ahead, Dave? I was going to say the other thing that I I've heard a lot actually over pretty much the last decade is, well, why do I want to own bonds when not just interest rates are so low, but because interest rates are low, people assume that they're going to get higher. So why would I own bonds in a rising interest rate environment? Is usually what people call it when I know that, you know, when rates rise, my bonds are going to decrease in value. And what my response at this point is, you know, look, at, at some point, interest rates are going to rise. I, I don't dispute that. But who knows when, because I've been hearing that since I graduated college in, you know, 2013. So, you know, especially you'd hear it, what, a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, and then especially intermediate U.S. bonds had really strong performance when uh, the market declined back in March and interest rates dropped and, and they had a pop in performance. So it is tough. It's like you'd say, oh, well, interest rates are going to go up, so bond prices are going to go down. Well, people have been saying that for years, and then it's actually been going the other way. So you never know how things are really going to play out with interest rates and how bond prices are going to change. Yeah, I can, uh, David, I can beat you by eight years. Um, <laughs> I went to a, a, a client conference in uh, 2005, and the topic was the uh, the bubble in the bond market, uh, the fact that interest rates can't possibly uh, go down from the 2005 level. It's probably like 3 or 4 5%. And it's happened time and time again. It happened, in uh, obviously, in 2007 to 2009. Then about a year ago, uh, how could interest rates go lower? And now we're at all-time lows. So owning uh, uh, bonds over that period of time, you didn't get a lot of uh, interest, but you did get some appreciation, so you never know. I mean, now I think uh, I would say they can't go any lower, but I say that knowing that uh, it, it's been proved wrong time and time again. Yeah. And, and it, it almost you know, assumes that 
you have to know what interest rates and bond prices are going to to be a successful investor. And, and I just reject that. And I, I always get back to Ben Graham, who is one of the great investors of all times. He basically, you know, I think Warren Buffett, you know, he, was, he influenced Warren Buffett, I think, great, a great deal. And, you know, he wrote the investor's chief problem and even his worst enemy is likely to be himself. And I think that says it all. But, you know, I think people think that, I don't think people really quite understand the history of income-producing investments such as CDs and short-term and reasonably high-quality bonds. Um, the payoff after taxes and inflation has always been pretty close to zero. Um, okay, so you had 5% CDs not too many years. Well, it's been a number of years now, Fred. Uh, but when you had 5% CDs, which people would love to have today, you had 3 to 4% inflation. So you lop off 1% for tax, 3 to 4% inflation, and you made somewhere between 0 and 1%. That's pretty much the standard issue. That is, if you're not taking on any risk, you're not going to get any, you're not going to get any material return. So I think, as David said it before, the bonds exist because most people couldn't handle, nor do they need, to have 100% of their portfolio in the great companies of America and the world. So you, you're going to default to something that doesn't get impacted in the same way, uh, same way not, not uh, affected in the same way, so that with the stock market's going down, I don't want my bond portfolio going down at the same time, ideally even it's going up. Intermediate treasuries historically have done a pretty good job at that. So, again, it's always about perspective. But my warning and the reason I wanted to bring that up today, uh, and one other question, Dave or Ryan, um, does that hold do you feel stronger about that in certain bond areas like particularly municipal bonds or particularly corporate bonds uh, that diversification and low cost story yeah i think um as far as diversification goes you know corporate bonds just because you're dealing with companies that can default um and then like bid ask spreads can be really wide so that's that's kind of a, a a way you can measure potential cost of trading if there's a wide bid ask spread i mean and basically if you're trading in a small amount you're kind of you're going to be getting a bad price essentially so those can be wider in municipal bonds so i know with, with muni bonds you tend to hear that as a downside as well if you're trading those in smaller dollar quantities you can really get hit hard as far as just getting bad trade price execution and also uh, a high interest rate is a sign of probably high risk so you know, buying an Illinois bond, For you, sure. you uh, get a higher return than some other states, but uh, the, the, what you're accepting there is a, a small but somewhat higher rate of uh, risk of, of default. We also get – we haven't had the call uh, for several years now, but uh, uh, the call is uh, – uh, my church is offering bonds at 8 percent. The church is really uh, honest and well-founded. Uh, why not buy the 8 percent bond rather than the 2 percent bond? Uh, you'd be surprised, Fred, how many – really smart business people like people that have made a lot of money um and are, are really just good solid entrepreneurial business smart people that will occasionally say hey i'm thinking about buying this particular investment i'm I, they're going to pay me nine percent you know pretty much guaranteed but not really guaranteed and it might be a real estate venture for example and i try to say look that's a high cost of capital for anybody to go borrow money in today's environment at eight or nine percent, they have to be taking on incredible levels of leverage or risk or both, or one leads to the other. 
And sometimes there's a disconnect between this idea of what somebody's willing to pay me in risk. Uh, they're, they're, not, they're, they're, they're connected at the hip, but a lot of people don't understand that that connection's very real. And you've said it a number of times. You know, I'll say, what do you think about this? And you'll say, well, it works until it doesn't. And I think there's an awful lot of it works until it doesn't. It, it, probably five years ago, one of the biggest investments I was constantly asked by people, should they invest in, were those um, master, master limited partnerships, MLPs. And they tended to be centered around the energy sector. In fact, almost all of them were. And that was a particularly good time for them. And they were paying high yields, 8 9 10% returns. That's kind of what it, that's being suggested what you'll earn. And it worked until it didn't. And it was all I could do to convince people that, look, you are chasing performance. You're chasing yield. You're putting money in a, in a risky situation that you don't even understand. You understand 8 or 9%, but you don't understand how difficult it is for them to generate that for you. Everything has to go right. Well, those, most of those master limited partnerships literally blew up. And if they didn't blow up until this year, you know, prior to this year, they blew up this year. Uh, that's really, I encourage people to read uh, Paul's article this Sunday about chasing performance. I, you know, it's a very common human trait. You guys hear it, uh, Ryan. How about your friends when you go visit your, all your doctor friends uh, in Ohio? I think they're all doctors, but you, by the way. <laughs> I think you glorify all my friends maybe a little <laughs> bit, but I think anybody just has that, you know, that possibility of saying, well, if I peek over the, the hedges of my yard and say, what's my neighbor doing? Could I be doing better than what I'm doing? It's a natural feeling to feel, um, but the the thing you always have to come back to is I'm not competing with my neighbor. I'm, I'm just trying to make sure that whatever I'm investing for, whether it's retirement, college, whatever it may be, that you're invested appropriately for that particular time when you need the money and how much you need. So, have, Yeah. Have you found that um, basically every one of our clients has a plan? When you're operating from a plan with certain expectations from that plan and you're never really talking about performance, you're just harnessing the returns that you hope to get over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Don't you think that not 100% of the time, but the vast majority of the people that are actually work acting on a plan continuously as opposed to continuously acting on current events, isn't there a certain level of freedom that eliminates that performance chasing oh it, it's it's 100 percent. you know takes the pressure down it you you see that from the client side or they say wow i didn't realize that i could still live the lifestyle and have this this plan work out even in the midst of a 10 20 30 percent decline or more um they're not looking at the dow jones average every single day and saying, well, because the Dow Jones went down 200 points, maybe right. my spending needs to go down because of that. It immediately transforms the conversation from market-driven to plan-driven. It's really more about how am I doing in this environment? Yeah. David, you're about to mention? Are going to be based, yeah, plans are going to be based on long-term historical average returns and then also you know, the standard deviation or uncertainty around those returns. And hopefully just focusing on that as opposed to maybe what's performing the best right now helps as well. You know, right now, basically everything's underperforming the S&P 500 or NASDAQ. Um, if you have a plan and you understand here's kind of the long-term expected return of my portfolio, even if it's maybe underperforming the S&P 500 right now, you still understand why you're in that portfolio and what the long-term expected return is. 
One thing that I always think back to is I, I attended a, uh, like a webinar put on by Ken French, who's a leading uh, financial uh, speaker, and uh, I think he's a teacher at Dartmouth. Is that yeah, right? He's, he's, a head, he's like the chair of the Tuck School of Business. The guy's, his he's partner great. got a Nobel Prize, and everybody expects that Ken French someday will get a Nobel Prize as well. Mm -hmm. And what, what his research showed, and something that I think about all the time, is that at every, any given point in history, or at any time when you're investing, there can be a factor. That factor could be like value, or it could be growth, or it could be profitability. But there could be a factor that lags for 10 years, uh, and that's a very normal time for it to lag. Uh, so data-wise, 10 years is normal. But for, for a human being investor who sees their particular investments lagging potentially for 10 years, you say, that's, imp you know, that's an impossibility for me to stay in it. I can't possibly allow myself to keep going down, and I have to make a change. So you see the human nature take over, and anyone who isn't armed with certain information that gives the historical perspective can easily become uprooted in their investments. And like we talk about, usually they end up selling at the wrong yeah. time. The paradox to a, a, a great retirement is you know, for most investors, in order for them to reach their lifetime goals over a pretty long period of time, they're going to have to have a certain level of, of their portfolio, a certain portion of their portfolio invested in the great companies of America and the world. And, the, the, and I think everybody sort of gets that, but I don't think everybody appreciates the stomach-churning um, uh, journey that can be at times. Uh, and, and it's just not easy. It's designed not to be easy if it was then it wouldn't provide the returns that people need to actually uh, realize what it is they want to have happen. It's, it's really quite the paradox. Everybody wants the returns that only the great companies of America and the world can give them. G given enough time, given enough water and fertilizer, you know, which is time and patience, um, and there's certainly no guarantees that you're going to get extraordinary returns or average returns. We've, we've been very clear about that over the years. But it's basically for most people, it's their only chance they're going to have to have a decent retirement. Very few people on planet Earth have enough money to go buy treasury bills in the front of a three-decade rising cost um, at retirement where when I look back at long-term historical data of inflation, it's safe to say that half the time people's cost of living through, through a three-decade retirement will triple. Mm -hmm. I don't, it doesn't tell me anything about the future. There are no facts about the future. But there's one thing I know. Fixed income has never been able to succeed in that type of situation in any material sense. And so it always circles back to you have to decide where you want your, your security and insecurity in life. Right. Do you want to be insecure yeah. on the front end or, on, or when you're in your 80s and 90s? Well, the, the key ingredient, too, is time. That uh, If you do this... You, you start doing it five years later, uh, you're not 5% uh, of the way to your retirement. Uh, the, the, the first part is building savings and then having compound returns uh, kick in. There was a, a story in the Wall Street Journal that uh, uh, Warren Buffett uh, would not be considered a really rich person if you look at him in 1960, when he was 65 years old. When he's 90 years old, he's uh, one of the richest people in the world. But most of his uh, his uh, Accumulation came after he was 65, not necessarily because of good investments, but because of the time compounding. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and people just, well, how many times you guys heard me say human nature is a failed investor, and that's yeah. why we exist. That's why great financial advisors, and we're not the only great financial advisors, that's why great and excellent financial advisors exist, to help people 
um, keep from succumbing to the universal destructive forces of human behavior in uh, finance. Anyway, uh, we're at the top of the hour, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks, David. Thanks, Ryan. And thanks, Dr. Fred. We'll be back in two weeks for more of Paul Rudy's On the Money. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.